Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My 7 Wonders. Since the dawn of time, wise men, philosophers and tourists have catalogued the most impressive monuments and other structures ever built and called them the seven wonders of the world. In antiquity, these included the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Colossus of Rhodes and the Great Pyramid of Giza. Other lists of seven wonders have identified natural phenomena such as the Great Barrier Reef in Australia or the Grand Canyon in America. A list of more modern wonders of the age of industry includes the Panama Canal and the London sewage system. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast. And the person I'm asking today is Ian Stone. Born and brought up in London, Ian Stone has been a stand-up comedian for the best part of 30 years, appearing on stages and festivals in all parts of the English-speaking world, and in some parts of the non-speaking world as well. In addition, he's appeared on many a TV show, radio programme and podcast, often talking about football in general and Arsenal in particular. But in his recently published autobiography, To Be Someone, he reveals other musical obsessions. But Ian, as a dedicated follower of football, music and comedy, what are the seven wonders on your list? (laughs) Hello, Clive. Well, um, all right. I mean, number one, and this was the first one that came to mind, was um, my Aunt Irene's uh, tomato soup. I believe it is a wondrous thing. And it's I right up to... there with the uh, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, I would think. <laughs> well, what, why? Why? What was special about her soup? Do you know what? I think it's more, it, it, it sort of, it brings me back to a, to a place where I was sort of happy, really. We used to go around to my Aunt Irene. Um, she was a bit of a saviour. My, my home life was a bit of a mess. And I used to go to my Aunt Irene's quite a bit. And particularly on uh, Passover, which is the, the Jewish festival. Uh, where you celebrate the Jews coming out of Egypt. Not um, with tomato soup, you don't. <laughs> well, the thing was about Irene is that she actually made three sorts of soup. Now, I've never been even to a restaurant that has three sorts of soup, but um, when we would turn up for my Auntie Irene's uh, uh, Passover feast, we do a bit of praying, as you do, and then we get stuck into the food. And the food consisted of chicken soup, which I think is a wondrous thing in itself, uh, a vegetable soup, and this tomato soup, which I absolutely loved. And um, it was, well, my mum tried to recreate it, and she never quite managed it, uh, for which I, I feel terrible, but what can you do? And um, uh, and I just absolutely loved it. But I think it more, it reminds me of a, of a happy time, you know, sitting around with family and, and at, a, at a large feast, sumptuous, some might say, and this soup, Basically, I think she put a lot of sugar in it, <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> to be honest with you. But I absolutely loved it. And um, I don't know if you've ever been to a Passover feast. Well, I have actually. I'm, I'm not Jewish, but I come from quite a Jewish area of lots of Jewish friends. And I have been to quite elaborate ones sometimes. And I remember bitter herbs being served and all sorts of other uh, unleavened bread, very, very important things that go back thousands of years in the history of the Jewish people. Tomato soup never <laughs> That's not mentioned in the no. Bible. I, I know when they said, listen, we're coming out of Egypt, we've done the 12 with 10 plagues, we're off, and they said, just let me finish my soup. I understand well, tomatoes, tomatoes hadn't made it to the old world by then. They're, they were grown and cultivated in America, and they didn't get there until the 14th, 15th, 16th century. So um, anyway, I didn't know think we were to go down that line. with. I think you're I, overthinking I mean, I, it, Clive. That's the point I'm making. I mean, we, uh, do you know what? Also, by the way, the bitter herb was one of my favourite ever moments because what you do in the service, um, when you'd have to point to various things on the plate. Uh, so you'd point to this thing called haroset, which is a sort of herb thing, which is meant to, meant to signify the cement the Jews used uh, when they were building these massive Egyptian structures when they were in slavery. And every time they said point to the bitter herb, me and my two cousins would point to my grandfather, right, who wouldn't find it funny at all. But we enjoyed it every year for years. But the thing that I remember most about that, well, I, I, I mean, there were my, my, my two cousins were big West Ham fans. 
So I remember once when we had the uh, the Passover service on the same night as West Ham playing Eintracht Frankfurt in the quarterfinal of the Cup Winners' Cup. And we paused after the food to watch the game before we went back to the service. So it was sort of loosely religious. But this soup, this soup was really something, Clive. Now, Ian, I've known you on and off uh, for several years, but I have the advantage of recently interviewing on the radio and for the purpose of which I read your autobiography. And uh, as I have to point out again, you too, um, you're very, very harsh on your your own family. Let's say your mother and your father, your father in particular. You say he was the laziest individual, the laziest adult you've ever met. So was when you say your home life wasn't brilliant, it was better with uh, Aunt Auntie Irene. Uh, that was uh, that was an escape from the the rowing between your parents. Yeah, there were various periods where I went to stay with Irene, and uh, and she would look after me and cook this amazing food. And I and I used to think, can I not just live here now? Can't I just move in? You got enough room? I moved to Redbridge for a couple of weeks. And I'd always end up going back home. And, and I was. I mean, you say I was harsh on my parents, but what I would say to, to you is you didn't have to live with them, Clive. <laughs> so <laughs> you, were, you are how you said you didn't believe in God, any God that could have allowed your mother and your father to get together <laughs> and meet well, and to marry. Now that's harsh on your parents and on God, come to that. Y- yes. I. Well, look, here's what happened. My mother and father got together in November 1958 and they went on honeymoon to Bournemouth. And three days after they went on honeymoon, my father said to my mother, I've got a surprise for you. And I guess any new bride would like to hear something like that. And he produced two tickets for Bournemouth against Brentford in the English fourth division. And uh, standing tickets, by the way, they didn't even sit down. And they stood on a terrace. And um, my mother must have thought, that man is a keeper. <laughs> Not a goalkeeper, obviously, but a no, keeper. You no. know? And, and um, it's, it went downhill from there. That's the point I'm making. All right, so you inherited perhaps an interest in football from your father, but not uh, an attitude of mind towards his, his wife and, and family. Well, I'd like to think, you know, I've been with my partner for a while and uh, I'd like to think that I've, uh, I've learned from their mistakes. They were just singularly unsuited to be together. And my father said to me, actually, the other day I went around to see him and he said we were happy for the first five years of, uh, of being together. And then I turned up essentially, and that was the the moment when it all turned. Oh, so, so you got the blame. You got the blame for it all going wrong. That's a bit unfair. Going back to what we were talking about, my auntie Irene's place became became a, a you know a little haven for me. Really, a all place right. where people sat round a dinner table and talked rather than you know try to attack each other with a cutlery. Cold, 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 hot. Hot what? Heinz cream of tomato soup. Summer meals need one hot spot. Heinz soup makes a picnic glow. Heinz for that good soup glow. Well, let's move on to the next uh, wonder of the world that you've selected, and and, uh, we might be on uh, more agreeable lines with this one. Anyway, what's your second wonder of the world? Uh, Yeah, well, I... I wanted to do something which had, you know, something athletic in it. And I did consider uh, talking about Ed Moses, the, uh, the um, 400 meter hurdler mm. in the 70s, who I just loved the, that sort of languid way that he ran. And I also considered Michael Holding as well, uh, especially for what he said recently about Black Lives Matter. I think he's just, just what a man. Yeah. But in the end, if I was going to choose an athlete, I really had to choose someone who played for Arsenal and sitting in the West Stand, as I did at Highbury, and watching Thierry Henry leave Gary Neville on his backside on nem- numerous occasions, and I'm sure you would enjoy it just as much, I just thought it, he was, and, and the way he played was a thing of beauty and a wondrous thing. And uh, I, I feel blessed and lucky to have seen him play so many times. Well, you're obviously pushing at an open door with me, but let's hope there are thousands, hundreds, millions of people listening to this. Not all football fans, not all Arsenal fans, but I suppose if you do follow football at all in this country uh, over the last few years, you'll be aware of Thierry Henry because he's a phenomenal player. But um, from the range of Arsenal players you've followed over the years, uh, you've picked him out. You you didn't go for Dennis Bergkamp or Liam Brady or Charlie George, any one of whom you might have said was a good player. Do you know what? You're absolutely right. And I probably could have chosen any one of those, particularly Liam Brady, who was my first love. But my son, my eldest son, uh, Elliot, is a dancer. 
and he has no interest in football whatsoever. But even he said to me that seeing the way Thierry moved, I mean, I think there's a bit of, you know, there's a certain, I'm not saying romance, I'm really not, but I'm saying that I I genuinely loved watching him move and, and he moved with such grace and such power and and the speed of him, um, I I don't think I've really seen a player quite like that. I mean, there is a statue outside of the uh, ground of him. In fact, it's a statue of him after he scored the winning goal against Tottenham, having beaten about four players and run the length of the pitch. And he ran, when he scored the goal, he ran down right in front of us, celebrating as we were, and celebrated in front of the Tottenham fans. And uh, th- that, to me, was a wondrous thing. There is, if you've ever seen a photo of, the, of uh, taken from behind him of all the Tottenham fans, some of them are making, I would say, rude gestures at him. Yeah. One or two of them look resigned, but I think yes. they all know that they're in they're, they're in the presence of genius. And um, I, I I loved watching him play. Well, it's always a difficult thing as a football fan, isn't it? Because you always hate a goal scored against you, but sometimes the goal is so good. I mean, I would, I would sort of, as a sort of counter to that, if you think to the 1999 FA Cup semi-final, Ryan Giggs scored a fantastic goal against Arsenal and then removed his shirt and revealed this hitherto unknown hairy chest. But that, you, although it's a horrible goal to have to look at again as an Arsenal fan, it is a fantastic goal as well. And it's a, it's a wonderful moment in his career. But anyway, Thierry Henry, let's not get distracted into Ryan Giggs. Uh, Thierry Henry, and you, you um, do I get the feeling that you, I'm not necessarily thinking you'd ever be a Thierry Henry, but you were a, a good footballer as a young, a young man and you, you, you would have loved to have had a football career yourself. Yeah, yeah, I I was a decent player. I was a, I was a decent player. I could I knew what to do. I could control the ball, but but uh, there aren't there aren't too many top-level Jewish athletes uh, to be perfectly honest with you, really. Uh it just doesn't happen. There's very few players who played at the top level, a couple of Israelis and that's it. But um yeah, of course I wanted to be a footballer, but I I realized pretty quickly that uh it wasn't going to happen. Um, and and then when you see players who are that good, and you go, oh, okay, okay. He, he, I, I think the thing about him, he was a physical specimen, wasn't he? I mean, he was six foot one. I think also, by the way, the advert might have had something to do with it as well. I, if, if people who might might not even know much about football would have watched the the Renault advert when he did the va va voom, and I think there was something about him that went beyond football. I think he became iconic outside of football as well. Yeah, he's and, good looking um, and super cool, isn't he? That's a, that's the thing. I, I'm not sure he's the best of pundits. He's a bit too nice uh, to be a good pundit, but he always looks so cool. He's always the best dressed pundit <laughs> on a panel on the television. Yeah, he 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 does seem cool to me. Uh, but really, you know, what I loved about him was what he did on the football pitch. And he stood up on the football pitch. And when you see, you know, 100 Premier League uh, people who've got 100 goals, and he scored lots of amazing goals. It wasn't even that that he just scored lots of them. He scored amazing ones. More than that, he was incredibly unselfish. So if there was a player in a better position than him, he would pass to them. And um, I loved, look, I, I pretty much loved everything about him. I think if he played for an opposition team, I'd have secretly loved everything about him as well, because in the end, it's the aesthetic, right? And I and there, like I say, the 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 statue of him is uh, is of him kneeling in front of the Tottenham fans and celebrating. But there's also a statue of Dennis Bergkamp outside, and he's got his leg outstretched and he's bringing down a ball on the end of his toe. I think Thierry Henry could do the same thing. There was something beautifully balletic about him, and um, we haven't had that many players of that caliber at Arsenal. Henry, what a goal! Inspiration for Arsenal from Thierry Henry. Well, you waxed lyrical about Ryan Giggs in the FA Cup semi-final. Have a look at one of the greatest goals I've seen on this ground. That's deliberate. That's majestic. Sheer brilliance. Sheer brilliance. That's all you can say about that piece of football from a talented, talented footballer. Absolutely unsavable. Absolutely magnificent. Thierry Henry is, uh, is, is celebrated there. Uh, so what's your, your third wonder of the world? I, I wanted to choose stand-up comedy in all its Well, it's glory. entirely up to you what you choose. Stand-up comedy. Um, well, as I've mentioned, you, you are a stand-up comedian, so this has provided you with, I suppose, entertainment, but also a career. Um, so when were you first aware of 
stand-up comedy. Did you like watching comedians on the television, or did yeah. you? Yeah. yeah. Uh, my my first my first comic hero was a guy called uh, Ken Goodwin. His name oh, was. Yes. He was a slightly um, silly laugh he had, didn't he? Yeah, settle yeah, down, yeah. settle yes, down. Yeah. It was was his thing, right? He'd get a laugh and then say that. And I was about eight years old, <clears throat> and I said to my mother, "I want to join the Ken Goodwin fan club." And uh, um, my mother wasn't very keen on on him because his name was Ken, as was my dad. So he didn't want another, she didn't want another <laughs> Ken in the house. But anyway, oh, this was an unhappy marriage. <laughs> she said, um, "Okay." So she sent off for for the uh, whatever it was, the little newsletter, fan letter you get, and badges and what have you. And uh, I was a Ken Goodwin fan for a while. I used to watch him and the and the other comedians on the comedians. Uh, yeah, they were of... traditional stand-up comedians, weren't they? Uh, which uh, was on for quite a few years. They just sort of spliced together lots of those, you know, English and Irishmen, Scots, and went into a bar. You know, man and a dog came in. Those, those sort of joke, interchangeable jokes. Some of them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. But but they had some very good comedians on there, and I think Les Dawson might have done it. I know Bernard Manning when he wasn't being racist could be quite funny. And, uh, um, you know, uh, Charlie Williams. And I remember watching them and thinking, this is, I like this. I like this form. And I enjoyed making people laugh. Um, so, yeah, I was always, always loved uh, stand-up. And, and so in my, in my sort of teenage years, 16, 17, I used to go to the comedy store regularly and watch, watch the comedians, you included, on occasion. <laughs> and, um, and, and, oh, I used to love it. I think it's, a, I think it's um, an underrated art form is my feeling. I mean, it's not underrated by the British public who go in their millions to watch stand-ups every, every year. But, but I think it's maybe looked down on as a sort of grubby, I don't know, not, not really a pure art form. It's low art, isn't it? And, I, and I, I would like to speak up for it because I think when stand-up works well, when I'm watching someone, I don't know, Bill Bailey being brilliant and, and he's got a, a room of a 1,000 people in hysterics, it's a thing of beauty. It genuinely is. And, and, and I'm not saying this. I've, done, I've managed to get people laughing in that way. But I'd, I'm happy just to be sitting in an audience as well with someone being brilliant because I think it, I, I genuinely love it and I, and I hope that it'll come back sooner rather than later. Well, before we get on to this, its current woes, it's, it's worth noting we, we, we went rapidly from the comedians of TV show. They were comedians that tended to appear in these sort of mythical places called Northern Working Men's Clubs. I, I don't know how they work. But in 1979, uh, the Comedy Store started in London, and it was for you know, sort of younger people, alternative comedy, hipper, hipper kind of comedy. And that sparked a phenomenon which has spread all around the, the country. But it was a different kind of comedy, people talking more more often, more personally about themselves and having an attitude rather than just doing interchangeable jokes. So you, you went along as just a, an audience member a few times, but then you, you did a, an open mic spot there, didn't you? Well, I got put down. I got my, my friends, who um, unbelievably remained my friends after this, uh, put me down secretly for the open mic spot, which used to go on. Uh, if, if you went to a show at midnight, they'd, they'd do two hours of, of the actual comedians, and then they'd get the open micers on at 2, 2.30 in the morning when everyone was roaring drunk and, uh, and they'd boo them off one after another. And it was chaos, absolute carnage. And they put my name down for it. And so, so when Tony Allen, who was the, um, the MC that night, said, and the next uh, one up, please welcome Ian Stone. And I heard my name and I thought, well, I can't say no because my name's been called out. <laughs> and, but were um, they doing that because they were thinking, actually, Ian's pretty funny, you know, in the pub, he's a great, let's yeah. put him, or were they saying, who can we pick on <laughs> to, to give a hard time to? Well, I'll leave that for your listeners to decide, Clive. Now, since you've had a career as, you have a career as a stand-up comedian, it may be they inherently knew that you would, you'd be fine with it. Though I don't think you were fine with it at that particular no. time. It was a very prescient move, but not at the time, I would say. I mean, I went on. I actually, I didn't know what to say. I stood there. I'd never been on a stage before. And, um, well, actually, I'd done a school play once, but I, I was playing, uh, I was some biblical thing. I can't even remember. But um, You, so you I, went into your I am Joseph, yeah. uh, is there room in your <laughs> in routine? Give me my <laughs> coloured coat. Yeah, that didn't work. Um, no, I stood there, and in the end, somebody said, tell us a joke. And I was never usually short, short of jokes, but I remembered one. And I said, uh, two lepers walking down the street. How are you? Mustn't crumble, right? And um, 
got pretty much the reaction you just gave me there. And, no, I'm um, laughing it in there. I was, oh, right. And, um, just for the horror of the moment, trying because <laughs> Yes. And Tony Allen went, uh, well, I can't say exactly what he said, but that's enough of that. He said, and he banged the gong, and I went off. And I didn't do stand-up comedy again for 12 years. I had no intention of doing stand-up comedy. At all? Wow, that's that is a long time between your your <laughs> debut and your and your second gig. I've got what, another booking. Yeah, yeah. What got you back? I mean, did you you, you must have spent a long time? Well, I say thinking about it, probably not thinking about it for quite some time. But but did that spark a little germ in your mind? That no, no, not at all. My my partner when I met my partner Rosie when I was twenty one. So this is about three four years later. I was an engineer. I was an air conditioning engineer, and um, my partner said to me about three months in. What are you doing, doing this, engineering? You're not even that good at it. You should try stand-up comedy. And while I thought she was crazy, I also thought she's intriguing. You know, this is before we even got together, actually. This is when we were still friends. I thought this is intriguing (laughs) that someone thinks that about me. You know, no one had ever said anything like that to me before. I came from Mm. quite a non-creative household, if you know what I mean. And so Rosie saying that to me, it took me seven years to, to get my head around it, but um, I finally did in 1990 and went on stage at the Comedy Cafe in Old Street, which has had an open mic night every Wednesday. And it wasn't the worst experience of my life. And I thought I'll give that another go. When you did go back to the comedy store, did you think, oh, wow, I can remember, you'd have flashbacks to that first time. But Well, uh, well, the strange thing was that Don Ward, who's the owner of the comedy store, remembered me from the first time. I mean, he said to me, oh, you've been here before. I said, oh, yeah, I come here all the time to watch comedy. He said, no, 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 you've performed here. I said, well, I did a two-minute open mic spot in 1980 or 79, whatever it was. How do you remember that? And he said, oh, it's the nose. I remember the nose. (laughs) I went, well, thank you, Don. Thank you very much. But I went on stage and I did an open mic spot and it was good enough for me to get booked. And, um, well, I don't want to say the rest You remembered your your nose. um, As I pointed out to you before, you do mention your nose an awful lot in your your book. It's quite a... It's it's a the noses run in your family. It would it would appear. <laughs> you know, yes, they do. They do. I I mean, I this is another reason my parents should have got together. I do feel mixing up the genes would be a good idea. Well, it was a bit of a nasal extravaganza in my house. But yes, I had and still have a big nose. And um, when you're a kid, when you're a young person, it's um, it can be a burden. I suppose. As, Having you know, anything as that marks you out, I suppose, yeah. yes. As I enter my, you know, as I'm almost entering my seventh decade, I've sort of come to terms with it, you know. But but certainly for comedy, it was probably a help. Got to have something, haven't you? Just got you remembered by Don Ward, you can make jokes about it or or not. Exactly. Yeah. So, and I, But from that day on, and I tried to be a comedian, and, it, you know, I'm still making the effort, I suppose. And um, it's, um, I just love the feeling. I mean, look, in terms of performing, to stand uh, on stage, I mean, I talk about this in the book. I don't know what your feeling is, but I, I tend to feel, I, I almost feel like I've got the audience on sort of almost like gossamer little sort of silken threads, and I'm pulling them around, and, and they're sort of helpless, really. And every so often, I, I, off they go, I'm pulling them over this way, and they, they can't do anything about it. And then just as they're settling back in their seats, I pull them in another direction as well. And and that feeling is is really when it's when it's working. There's I, I, I've, what I actually feel is when I'm doing it when it's working. I think God, I wish I could watch this. <laughs> and I, that maybe sounds slightly egocentric, but you know, I'm a stand-up comedian. All right, I'll just get on with it then. Finish doing your text or whatever you're doing or your tweet or something. <laughs> I've arrived. Hello, mate. Someone house You've got what? What? Someone house sitting. Dog, dog sitting. All right then. Okay, fair enough. Well, thanks for sharing. We had two missed calls. Oh, okay. Listen, I'd love to chat. I'm a little bit busy at the moment. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Okay, well, that, that's, uh, that's a very good selection for the wonders of the world. But uh, we'll go to something even bigger in terms of uh, performance for your fourth uh, suggestion your fourth your fourth wonder the the 2012 olympic opening ceremony the london olympics and the opening ceremony and i i well i just think it was a beautiful wondrous thing that danny boyle did and i think he made us feel there's not been a lot of times when i, I felt particularly proud of this country in the last few years but that was a moment possibly the high point of the 21st century for britain i'm not not everyone will agree i understand that but for me, because there'd been a lot of talk coming up to that Olympics that what was the opening ceremony going to be like and it'll be a bit rubbish and a bit Teletubbies, I think is what they said. Yeah. And then, and I think we thought the whole event might be a, a, a washout, really. If you remember uh, 2012, which was a very funny comedy series on the television uh, John Morton put together, was, was predicated on the idea it was all going to go wrong and the planning was going to be a disaster and the, maybe the stadium wasn't going to be finished and the opening and closing ceremonies were obviously not going to be anything like as good as the ones they'd done in China where they were able to put on spectacular events, you know, because people can be moved around much more easily there. Well, well, that's, I mean, listen, hey, in North Korea, they're unbelievable at doing these, you know, 500,000 people you know, marching at the, in the, at the same time and doing all sorts of gymnastics and what have you. But that's on pain of death if they get it wrong. Whereas here, they had volunteers. They had thousands and thousands of volunteers. Listen, I love Danny Boyle. I think I love Train Spotting. I love the zombie films. There's lots of movies. Slumdog Millionaire was great. And I think he was the perfect person to direct yeah. that because he is. Well, he has he quite is, a range of films, doesn't he? So this was. Yeah, another weird thing, in a, you know, not weird, but a different thing for him to put his mind to. Yeah, but he is he is incredibly collaborative, and and the people he got he he got some very he got Frank Cottrell Boyce to write the sort of vague script for the whole thing. He got the guy from Underworld to do the musical direction. He had very he got the talented Queen people. to take part. Well, that was the moment for me. I mean, I don't know what you felt. I thought the opening ceremony was it was going along nicely. I can't remember the first couple of bits of it. They had. Um, there was, I can't remember the actual order, but the moment when Daniel Craig went to the palace and the corgis are running around his feet, and I was, I'll tell you where I was, I was with my family at Bestival, which is a music festival down on the Isle of Wight, and we're all sat in a big comedy, they had a comedy tent, but they were showing the opening ceremony, and there were about 5,000 people in that comedy tent. And when the Queen turned round, when, and when everyone, because my missus was going, that's not the Queen, I'm going, that is the Queen, that is the Queen. No, it's not. And then she turned around and it was the Queen. And the whole tent went crazy. I mean, they went nuts. It was beautiful. And that sequence, that sequence of the Queen and Daniel Craig getting into the helicopter, flying over the stadium, and then the Queen and Daniel Craig jumping out and the James Bond music playing. I, do you know, I, I get emotional talking about it. I, and I watched a documentary about it, about the making of it. And at that point, when the Queen and uh, not the Queen, but the woman dressed as the Queen <laughs> and Daniel Craig jumped <laughs> don't out, don't spoil of, it. Don't spoil it. Sorry, sorry. Spoiler <laughs> alert. When they jumped out of the air uh, of the helicopter and the James Bond music started playing, the people in the in the production control booth, the directors and what have you, and the assistants all jumped up and were cheering. I I think that was the moment when we all thought this is going to be something special. Now this really has. If they've got the Queen involved. And then all, all the other things that went into it, the NHS, the Industrial Revolution, Ken Branagh, the, 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 the humour, Rowan Atkinson being funny in front of 100,000 people and a billion people. I thought it represented the best of us. I genuinely did, and I genuinely still do. And, and I, I loved it. I, and I felt the Olympics was better for it. 
it, it, it really, it really, it was a, it was a launch pad for the Olympics, and I think we all felt good about ourselves for a while. London is ready. So take a deep breath. Absolutely. Yes, so I never felt a car so deep. The river glided at his own sweet will. He has blown them all away. So let's go on to your um, your fifth wonder. Uh, what's that? Oh, it's the Glastonbury Festival. Um, have you ever been to Glastonbury, Clive? I'm afraid I haven't. I have a daughter who has gone lots of years, and she always comes back. Rain, rain or shine, whoever the the headlining act is, she always comes back and says that is the best time of her life. Those few days are absolutely phenomenal. So, but I felt that she started saying this to me when I was a bit a bit past it for for going to my first Glastonbury festival, but. Because it's been going on, I should have gone when I was her age, because I think it started 1970, uh, the glass in a a small way, uh, and has been going on most years uh, since then, not not absolutely every year. So when did you first go to the Glastonbury Festival? I think the first time I went was about 1996, and I didn't really get it then, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I I actually went in the afternoon, performed in the comedy tent, and then drove to Leicester to do a gig in Jonglers Comedy Club, right? Which couldn't be less Glastonbury, uh, if you yeah. know them. Um, and that yes. was the first time I went. And I didn't really, uh, I don't know, I suppose the word would be submit, really. Because no, that sounds like you were just in and out to, to do I a was, job rather yeah, than it was a other gig. people would say, oh, wow, I've got a gig at Glastonbury. Never mind whether or how much I'm paid. I'll be able to go to see all the other things while I'm there. But you, you weren't sold on it yet. No, I mean, I love my live music. I mean, you've, you've read the book, you know that. But, mm. but Glastonbury wasn't a thing that, um, uh, that I was really, I thought. And, and I used to think about the discomfort, the toilets and all the, the rain, if it rains, the mud and all that stuff. But it's not about that. In the same way that I'm talking about stand-up comedy and people say, oh, the heckling must be terrible. How do you cope with the heckling? And I, I think you, you can't really get fixated on that. These are negatives that can happen and you have to deal with them. But when I started going again in, I don't know, 2010, something like that, I've been a few times since then, but in 2010, I started going regularly and performing there regularly. And I think... I think I just suddenly got it, really. I went along on the, on the I think the last time I went, I went down there on the Wednesday afternoon and, you, um, and you're sort of there for four or five days. It's a playground for, for, for adults, really. It's like a gigantic playpen for adults, if you like. First question I was asking, is it a good place for performing comedy? Because I know there's a comedy tent, but presumably there's lots of noise coming in from, um, you know, who happens for, from Beyonce or from Status Quo or whoever the... <laughs> Beyonce. The Shut up, Stones, Beyonce. I've got me, got me routine. I'm doing it here. Shush. No, no. The comedy, actually, the comedy tent and the cabaret section is in, a, is in a field quite a long way away from the big main stages. So you don't get a lot of noise, actually. You don't. It's, it's, it is looked after. Um, it can be brilliant, but the truth is the gig... You performing at the gig is how you get in. That's that's yes, how exactly. you get that's in. That's what I was putting to you before, really. So, so having got in, do you then? I don't know if you do. You get a free pass to go to all the other show, or do you get a backstage pass so you can meet the the headliners? Oh, I'm I'm Ian Stone. I'm doing I'm <laughs> I'm doing a twenty minute spot in the comedy tent. And uh, Miss Miss Beyonce, uh, what what are you doing? Yeah, <laughs> who are you? What are you doing here? <laughs> yeah. I am. No, you get a backstage pass for the uh, the comedy and cabaret section, and so obviously you can hang out there. and And honestly, it's very nice. You just hang out with people you haven't seen in in a year, and and people you don't work with that much in the clubs. And that's that's that camaraderie is part of it. But then there's the whole gigantic festival that you can just wander about when you're not gigging. You wander about and go and see thousands of music performances of all sorts of bands, uh, and and it's um. It's the amount of joy that there is there that I think is what I love. Um, I mean, I went last year and there was a performer called Lizzo. I don't know if you know much about Lizzo. She I don't was, really. She's uh, a black woman. Very, um, she's big. She's a big woman, right? But she's proud of the size of her. And she had a couple of big hits last year. And I have never seen a field packed full of people having so much fun. It was a beautiful, sunny Saturday afternoon, and we were all singing along, and and I, I can't really describe it better than there was it was unconfined joy, 
And how often do you get unconfined joy collectively? And 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 I and I I genuinely love it. I mean, I really do. It's one of my favourite things to do. Listen, I'm knackered for a week when I come back. It absolutely floors me. But my God, it's fun. And I've been with my family. Last year, I took my eldest son, and we had four days, the best four days of our lives there. I mean, and I, is he happy having his dad along with him, or would he rather, you know, wander off in a tent with a couple of mates and uh, pitch pitch next to a tent with some? New people to meet, to put it that way. Well, he's happy that his dad has bought an RV along, so he has a nice comfy bed and a uh, and a toilet and a shower backstage in the cabaret section that he can go to for comfort. Um, is he happy oh, with well, his you're dad? You're quite a luxury a luxury goer then. It, it, it's always glamping almost. Uh, well, I, I have camped plenty of times, but, you know, I'm of a certain age, Clive, and I feel a certain a certain comfort is in order. It costs me money, but I that's how I like to do it. But I still... You know what? If it rains, I get as wet as anyone else. <laughs> I don't have a servant carrying an umbrella with my special Wellingtons. The Glastonbury Festival. Five hours of rain has turned a dusty farm into a quagmire. But despite the deluge, most festival goers appear undaunted by this torrent of water. As you said earlier on in this uh, conversation, there's thing about sort of group experience that uh, that you go for. Uh, but we've got two more uh, of these uh, wonders to go through. Now, the next one's a country. Yeah, I chose India. Um, uh, uh, I mean, as a collective experience, you don't get many countries which have more people than India. And um, I, I, I always was fascinated as a kid by India. I remember seeing heat and dust and... Uh, the jewel in the crown and all these these dramas, BBC dramas, I think, and I and I always was I was I always had a fascination with the country, um, and so I got to go when I the, the transition between being me, me being an engineer and me being a stand up comedian was I went to India uh, to find myself. That's what you do, you know. All right, and uh, were you there when you got there? <laughs> well, the joke is you get on a plane and nine hours later you find yourself in India, right? But, yeah. uh, <laughs> but were you going to do some engineering or were you just no. taking a, like a gap year or were you going off to well, – how, how did it work, this particular trip? I, I finally decided that I didn't want to be an engineer anymore and, uh, and so I booked a, year, a year's ticket and, and tr- so travelling around the Far East and, and Asia and what have you and, and India was my first stop. And so I got my backpack and I saved up the money and I flew off to India on March the 10th, 1990. And uh, so, um, I landed. I can't and, rapidly do the calculation. How old were you? 27. So a little bit old for a gap year, a little bit young for a midlife crisis. <laughs> uh, but, yes, yes. But why not? Yeah, 27. Okay. Well, I, I, it, my part, Rosie, my partner, said it'd be good for you just to go and do something different. And uh, so she sent me off with her blessing. In fact, I think she wanted rid of me, to be honest with you. And um, Rosie is emerging well from this conversation. She seems to have encouraged you into your career in comedy, uh, which was a, a good thing. And she's been kind enough to say, "Why don't you? Didn't she want to come with you to to find herself as well?" No, she already had herself. She was she was happy with herself. She just felt that I needed a few more experiences outside of North London, and she was absolutely right about that. So she said, go on, off you go. I mean, listen, honestly, Clive, I, I could have included her as one of the wonders. None of any of the things that have happened to me that have been good happen without her. None of them. I'm, I'm putting her on my list of wonders. She's <laughs> Yeah, she's quite something. But she said... To have be- taken the rough clay of you and form you into the stand-up comedian and uh, somebody in touch with his emotions and all sorts of things. So, where, But let's get back to India. Where, which, which bits of India? Did you have enough time to go around the whole country, the whole subcontinent? Or, well, I've been, or I've been it- about six or seven times, but this first right. time I was there for about two and a half months and I landed in Delhi, or New Delhi, and I and I, and the first night I um I got ripped off within about ten minutes of getting there by a cab driver. So you know that was like a proper initiation that has to happen. And then and then I found the boarding house I've been looking for because you you everyone used to follow these Lonely Planet rough guides, and this one recommended this ha- this boarding house, this sort of hotel. And the first night I slept on the roof because they didn't have any rooms, but they put you up on the roof under the stars, and. Uh, and that was pretty cool. You know, I thought, my God, I'm in India sleeping under the stars and all the sounds of the street and everything. And then the next day I, I started wandering around and I met a guy who sort of shoved um, 
what was basically a cotton bud into my ears and then pulled it out and showed me. He said, look at this. Look at this dirt. And he said, I'll clean your ears. <laughs> and I thought, well, why not? You know, I'm in India. So he, he squirted something in my ear and had a little poke about with a cotton bud, right? And then when he'd finished, he sort of cupped his hands and he went, hello, hello, right? <laughs> in my ear. I thought he should get his mate on the other side to listen. And then he tried to charge me 300 rupees and I managed to bargain him down to 40 because I was getting better at it. And the next two months were really a roller coaster. It's, it's, it's one of those countries where you're, it's a very emotional trip going there. You can get really upset by the, uh, by the poverty and, and all the, it's, it's, it can be quite a sort of, the standards of cleanliness in terms of the toilet arrangements, I won't say any more than that, can be a bit low. But I, 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 loved, I loved most of it. I genuinely did. And I wandered around the country. I went to the Taj Mahal. I went to the south of India. I went to Madras and Calcutta. I went on 56-hour train journeys. It was, it was uh, mind-blowing, as you can yeah, imagine. It's a fantastic place, yeah. It is. And, and, I, and I, I've been back six times, and I've stayed in the top end sort of luxury hotels. Um, we, the Comedy Store opened there. And God bless him, Don Ward put us up in the Taj Hotel in, in oh, Mumbai. Right. Very upmarket. Oh, the, the best hotel I've ever been in my life. And that yeah. was lovely, although I was a nightmare when I got home. <laughs> Bring me tea. Get your own tea. <laughs> Clapping your hands. Yes. Rosie. Yes. Rosie. <laughs> yes. But, um, but I've, I've, I've also stayed in, you know, one pound a night guest houses as well. So I feel like I've seen a lot of it. But I, I just think it's, 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 a, it's an assault on the senses. And I like those feelings. I genuinely do. I'm, I'm open to them. And, and, I, and I wanted to have that, and, and India certainly gives you that. country of wonders a subcontinent of wonders uh well we've we've got to pu- push on to your last wonder and i can't believe that it's taken all this time to get to your last wonder so what is your seventh wonder of the world well as you said you have talked to me about my book to be someone and to be someone is a book it's part social history part autobiography and part love letter to paul weller and the jam um it was they were the band for me growing up i mean i've talked when I went to Glastonbury about seeing live music, the jam were the first band I saw uh, in an indoor venue uh, in 1978. And I thought, and I, I was smitten from the moment, I was smitten from the moment I heard them on the radio, but to see them live, to see three guys make that much noise and be 10 foot from the stage when John Weller, Paul Weller's dad walked out and went, please welcome the best band in the world, the jam. And the boys came out and they played It's Too Bad. And like I say, I was 10 foot from the stage. I was 14. It was the best moment of my life. Uh, it, it, do you think you went for them just because that was your age and that was the, the, you know, one of the bands around at the time? Or was there something about the, the sort of subjects they were singing about? Or, or what was it? What was it that drew you to the jam? And Paul Weller, the, who's the lead singer and the, the writer of the songs. I, I think it was all of those things. I mean, I think the subject matter of the songs you know, the, the social injustice, police brutality. It was social commentary, really. And I was drawn to that because there weren't many bands doing social commentary at that point. Before that, you had glam rock, which was absolutely not, you know, ballroom blitz is not about social commentary. It's about fight in a club, right? Um, but... Yeah, but the... the um, so the jam were kind of... You could call them a punk band, but they were kind of more than a punk band, weren't they? They were beyond punk. Well, they were part of that they, they they came up at the same time as that punk movement, you know, but they weren't a punk band. I mean, the punks, the actual punks were wearing ripped clothes and, and you know, um, earrings and what have you. The jam were wearing suits. They were wearing suits. Yeah, Paul were, was always they in. They were mods. Yeah, they were in, Paul was into the mod thing. And I like that sharp dressing. I think there's something about for working class kids to dress up, you know, I, I, I think to dress up on a weekend. A lot of the original mods were, had, had um, manual jobs, you know. They were pipe fitters or, or you know, gas fitters, whatever. They had manual work jobs. And 
So they spent a lot of time quite dirty and grubby, but at the weekend they'd scrub up, they put on their best suits and they'd, and they'd try and look the best they could. And I think Paul Weller had that thing about him as well. And I like to follow that, you know, and, and so it was the way they dressed, the attitude, the songs. I really loved the tunes. Um, it was the whole package, really. Uh, so is any particular song, I mean, to, to be someone you've used, which is the title of a, uh, one of their tracks, but perhaps that just fitted the title of your book. But it was, was is that your favourite track or, you know, uh, ones about, un, you know, the underground going either underground or getting beaten up on the underground? <laughs> Tube station, yes. And, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, the, the point is, with To Be Someone, the idea of the book was that Paul Weller taught me to be someone. He sort of, I, that was my formative years from 14 to 19. And I'm not saying he made me the man I am today, but he certainly helped. He opened my eyes to a lot of stuff. So that's why I chose that track. I mean, a favorite track, there's, there's too many to mention, but I do love Tube Station. And I love the fact, by the way, down the Tube Station at midnight, it's a violent song, um, but I love the imagery and I loved the fact that it was about London. I've always been a London boy. I grew up in London, and I and I and I, there weren't that many mentions of London in songs, and so I I did actually like that fact. Even a bomb in Wardle Street, which is not about a nuclear attack particularly, but I liked the fact that he mentioned places that I was starting to explore at that time in my life. Right. Okay. Um, but did what did you draw from him though? Do, uh, you mentioned the, the snappy dressing, the being a mod. Did, would, would you a mod? And do you perform on stage now wearing a suit and tie? You know, a grey suit and a dark tie, no, like no, no. Paul Weller. I like to dress up. I, I uh, at this point, no, I don't think I am. I, I think I wanted to be a, a sort of a mod because you want to be part of the group. You know, it's. I mean, the book is really as much about acceptance and about fitting in and about being part of, a, of, of something bigger than yourself, which I think quite a lot of these wonders, aside from my Auntie Irene's tomato soup, um, would, would actually fit into that category. What I drew from him, he opened my eyes to a lot of the politics that were happening at that time. I hadn't really thought about them. I, I grew up in a very non-political house. You know, we read tabloid newspapers, and we didn't. nobody ever talked about that stuff in my house. So I got my politics partly from Paul Weller. and. Um, you know, that, that was an eye-opener to me. Uh, I'd never really thought about that stuff before he started singing about it. There's a poignant incident, uh, you, or the way you write it up is very poignant, that, as you say, um, Paul Weller's father, John Weller, used to be their sort of manager and would introduce them and stuff, and they, he, they noticed you and your mates following the jam, and at one point John Weller makes you a cup of tea or gives you a cup of tea, and you say... Uh, that's that's one more cup of tea than your own father had ever made you. <laughs> yes, that is true. Um, yeah, no, we used to we used to go to the sound checks as well. One of the differences between the Jam and almost every other band that I think you could follow was that they would sometimes let the fans into the sound checks before, like three hours before the gig. So we were, I can't remember where we were. It might have been Manchester, might have been Birmingham, somewhere outside the venue, middle of the afternoon, late in the afternoon, and it was pretty cold. And John Weller suddenly popped out. We all knew John and he knew us by then. You know, we'd been to a lot of gigs and we were some of the faces that he knew. And he said, bit chilly, lads, come in, I'll make you a cup of tea. And we all came in, five, six of us, and he made us a cup of tea and he let us stay for the sound check. And we watched the band, you know, tuning up and doing a couple of songs. I mean, you know, Mick Jagger's dad did not come out before Rolling Stones gigs and uh, and make, partly because he'd have been 110 even then. But um, I, it's, don't, I don't think about Mick Jagger's dad. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure he was very kind to I'm sure he is as well. Fat. But yeah. you understand the point I'm making. It was, it yeah, was, yeah, unusual. Sure. It was unusual. Yeah. How can you not love a band where the dad will make you a cup of tea on occasion? So were you happy being a fan in those years or did you have a secret dream either at Arsenal, you know, there was something to say, we're one player short. Can you, can anybody here uh, make up the numbers playing midfield or in the jam, you know, oh, uh, oh, blimey, the drummer's hurt his hand. Um, can you, can somebody take over who knows the songs or, or do some backing singing so you've got a sore throat? Did you ever dream of those sort of things happening? No, never. I mean, obviously, <laughs> no, not for a second. I mean, one, I knew I wasn't good enough in football. I thought I was a useful player, but I knew I wasn't good enough and I couldn't play an instrument. So I knew it wasn't about that. It was purely that it, it was it was about pe being part of something bigger than yourself. You know, I, I've always felt a sense of wonder at being part of these great gatherings. You know, I've talked about Glastonbury and that Olympic thing. Of being, of being, you know, the 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 um, 
the fact that you're it, I'm unimportant in this. It's all about what I'm watching. So no, I never thought about getting on a stage or getting on the football pitch and, and playing for the Arsenal. I'd love to have done it. But I knew, I'll say as far as football's concerned, I knew very early on. I used to have dreams quite until quite quite late in life about playing for Arsenal. And then one night when I was about 45, I was dreaming about scoring a winning goal in the last minute and making a, a, a sort of lung-bursting run. And halfway through the run, in the dream, I stopped and went, you'd die if you did this. <laughs> and that was the last time I ever had that dream because I couldn't anymore. But in terms of being a kid, in terms of being a kid, no, I didn't, I didn't ever dream about that. It was just, I was just a fan. Yeah, well, sadly, and you are now too old to become an Arsenal player and probably too old to become an Arsenal manager because managers <laughs> get, get younger and younger. Yes. The only hope for you and me both is we've got to make billions of pounds or dollars or whatever from somewhere and, and, and own the club or buy the club. And uh, that, that's the only, so you have to hope to get back to stand-up comedy and those rich fees you can get from going to, well, not jonglers in Leicester, but uh, <laughs> various places. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah the not, radio careers yeah. should, should help, shouldn't they? Let's be fair. Yes, indeed. That, that's the way to make a lot of money. <laughs> All right. I, I want to I select one of your wonders to, to make in the sort of list as I go along of wonders. I feel I, uh, I, I think it'd be un inappropriate for me to start picking Arsenal players as they get uh, mentioned in all this. Um, Glasmere I've never been to. Would quite like to make it the jam for you, Ian, because you've written so extensively about your or hero worship of the jam. But India is bigger. It's always going to be bigger than the jam, if you don't mind me saying so. But so let's make it India. Thank you very much for sharing your seven wonders with me, Ian Stone. Thanks, Claude. This is a Stakhanov production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the Acast Creator Network. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.